One of the very first fears that a child experiences is the fear of the dark, right? It doesn't take too long to have that moment when we turn out the light and suddenly the child lets us know that he or she is not excited about being in darkness and they cry out in some way and protest and so we have night lights and we crack the door a little bit just to avoid that, that sense of darkness. Even as adults, if we're home alone and the power goes out and suddenly it is completely dark, there's a moment or so of anxiety. We, we sort of feel that, that darkness, if you will. In the home that I grew up in, um, we had in our basement um, polstering lights in a lot of the rooms, and they weren't real bright to begin with. And so you'd be in the center of the room, and you'd pull the string, and the room was dark, and then you'd have to leave. And I can remember a lot of times, you know, pulling it kind of quickly and moving as I was pulling it so I could get to the stairs. Knew there was nothing there. I had just seen it with the lights on, and yet there was something about being in darkness that makes you want to move toward the light and get out of that. In the Bible, darkness is either neutral and descriptive, speaking of darkness of night in some kind of picturesque way, or it signifies evil. I, I have not seen any good darkness in the Bible. Uh, if you can think of a verse that speaks to a good reference to darkness, uh, you can enlighten me on that, pun fully intended. Um, but uh, darkness, there you go, you got it. <laughs> darkness throughout Scripture is tied with evil. In Deuteronomy, when God spoke to his people, there's a sense of fear that comes. God is speaking, and it's not evil in this case, but there is that dark, thick cloud it describes around Mount Sinai, and that adds to the sort of terrifying effect that the people experience at that moment. In the law, God warns then that those who disobey him, he says, would grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, that sense of being lost, not being able to find your way. Job, when he's in the midst of his suffering in Job chapter 3, curses the day on which he was born, and he says, let that day be darkness, let gloom and deep darkness claim it. As for the night on which he was conceived, he said, let thick darkness seize it. In other words, let that, let that day and that night be done away with. Let them just be taken away by the darkness, shrouded by the darkness, and not even to be seen. Psalm 82.5, the psalmist speaking of the wicked says, they have neither knowledge nor understanding, they walk about in darkness. And then one of the most familiar Old Testament verses is Isaiah 9.2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Isaiah's prophecy, we know, is anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ and the picture is of light suddenly shining in a place that is dark, in a land that is just consumed with darkness, whether the people know they are in it or not. They may be living their lives just fine. They may not feel like they're stumbling around, and yet spiritually the Bible continues to give this picture of being lost in darkness. Speaking to those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.13 says to us, God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom 
of his beloved son. That is a glorious picture of the gospel as a rescue mission, of the gospel as reaching in to the darkness of sin and death and wreckage and destruction and, and delivering us, rescuing us from that. So not only are we brought into the light, but now able to see the glory of our Savior, able to see the, the glory of our God and what he has for us, for our lives and for eternity. Jesus Christ declares this about light and darkness in John chapter 8. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 8. We're resuming our study of the Gospel of John. Um, we're going to spend probably April and May in John 8 through 11, and then we'll take a break. We'll get up through the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and that's sort of the, the turning point, if you will, in the Gospel of John, where we go from the, the public ministry and the demonstrations of Jesus Christ in both public speech but also in signs to where John chapter 12, we begin to focus more on his ministry to his disciples, to those that he is equipping to lead the church that he will leave with them. And so we'll spend April and May in chapters 8 through 11, then we'll take a break over the summer months. But let me just read verse 12. John 8 verse 12 says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So it starts with, again, Jesus spoke to them. If you remember, a few weeks back, we looked at John 8, 1 through 11, which is the story of the woman who was caught in adultery, where the, the, the leaders are saying, should we stone this woman, trying to, to, to position Jesus in a difficult place. And as I said to you then, and, and you probably have a note in your, your Bible that says that this that passage wasn't found there in the original manuscripts. It seems very biblical in terms of its text, and yet it sort of interrupts what seems to be the chronological flow because at the end of that story with the woman, the crowds had dissipated. You'll recall that the Jewish religious leaders sort of hung their heads and walked away. The crowds seemed to disappear, and it's Jesus and this woman, and then he says to her, now you go and sin no more. And so it ends with sort of this solitary scene, and then suddenly, verse 12, it's again Jesus spoke to them. So presumably, we're, we're going back and sort of picking up from the end of chapter 7, where Jesus is in Jerusalem. It is the festival of booths. He is speaking to crowds that are in the area of the temple, and he is preaching to them, and, and we have him again here now speaking to this ongoing crowd. The, the Feast of Booths, if you recall, um, was a fall feast for the Jews, really two purposes, one sort of akin to our Thanksgiving, a harvest time of celebration of Thanksgiving for what God had provided in abundance that year. And then secondarily, it was to look back to remember the time when the Israelites, after they had been freed from slavery in Egypt, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and God provided for them. He miraculously gave them food and water, and they lived in tents or booths. That's the, the festival that they celebrated to not only thank him for the harvest, but to celebrate then God's care for their ancestors. There is one event that took place nightly during the festival of booths, which was in one of the courts around the temple, and it was the lighting of a golden lampstand. Each night, this bright candle was illuminated, this light in the area, and it was to point back to that time in the wilderness when God led them in a pillar of fire. One commentator describes it this way, the lamps were intended to remind worshipers of God's leading of Israel through the wilderness at night by a pillar of fire. We remember that from Exodus 13 that describes how the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud 
that he led them during the day and then at night by a pillar of fire so that they might travel by day and by night. So that's good for us to know because in the midst of that celebration, as, as people are worshiping God for his giving of the light that led their forefathers through the wilderness, God providing that light to, to light the path to illuminate it for them, as they're remembering that in their worship at the Feast of Booths, it is in that context that Jesus then makes this dramatic declaration. You are rejoicing in God's giving of light. I am the light of the world. Whoever walks and follows after me will, will never be in darkness, but will experience the light of life. It is a remarkable statement by Jesus, much like we had seen in the Feast of Booths, the pouring out of the water. Jesus uses the, the picture of that as an illustration. Now he uses the, the candles lit to say, if you're looking for light, I am the one you must come to. I will light your path. I will give you life. What unfolds then after this is not unusual for us as we've seen in the Gospel of John. It's another one of these scenarios where it's almost like a courtroom in which the, the Jewish religious leaders are on one side and Jesus is on the other and the goal of the religious leaders is to somehow catch Jesus, to indict Jesus, to somehow bring Jesus to arrest and condemnation. And, and what we're going to see here is, again, for the repeated number of times we've seen this, Jesus turns it back on the, the religious leaders. And, and Jesus really sets the charge here with that first statement. You will either follow me and walk in light, or you will not, and you will walk in darkness. And there's really the terms of this, of this hearing, if you will, in court. Will you follow Jesus and walk in the light? Either they will do that or they will be in darkness. Verse 13 the Pharisees begin to engage him on this. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Let me just stop there for a second. The defense of the Jewish religious leaders in response to sort of the declaration or the charge by Jesus it completely ignores what Jesus just said. They don't go back on the substance of him being the light of the world, uh, of walking in darkness. They, they've way too many times found that when they've tried to go after Jesus in terms of language and words, it usually comes back on them. And so the, the goal at this point is you're in front of a crowd, you've got people who are maybe bystanders, maybe inquisitive about Jesus, and all they're really trying to do in, in desperation at this point is to sort of attack the credibility of Jesus. Oh, this is just one man standing in a temple court making claims about himself. How can you believe one man? He has no credibility. This guy could claim anything, and if he's got no witnesses, then it doesn't matter at all. And so the, the goal here is to just somehow undermine Jesus and say, you're not credible, we don't believe you. So then verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Pause there. 
This whole debate that, that the Pharisees have raised, if you remember, think back to John chapter 5, they've, they've been down this path before. Jesus has already defeated them on this argument once before when he did the healing of the man at the pool when he did it on the Sabbath. And they began to attack him and, and they came at him for, for making claims about himself. This was many months earlier. And Jesus responded at that point and and acknowledged what they were saying. He basically disarmed their argument because he said in John 5, 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And then he proceeded to list off five different lines of testimony in front of the crowds and the Jewish leaders to say, it's not just me testifying about myself. There is my own testimony. There are the miracles, the signs that I perform that are a whole nother category of demonstrating who he is, the, the supernatural miracles. There are the prophecies that are being fulfilled in Jesus that are a third line of evidence to who he is. There was John the Baptist who testified and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's John's testimony. And then there's God the Father, who at Jesus' baptism said, behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus has, has already torn them up on this very argument that they're bringing up. There was more than sufficient evidence to validate that this teacher from Nazareth named Jesus, who was now known from one end of the nation to the other throughout Galilee and Judea, whose teachings had been heard and experienced as being that of the word of God speaking with authority, who had done miracles that only God could do, that things they couldn't explain any other way, that all of that had been played out in front of these people, and it was abundantly clear that this was the Messiah who was being sent from God to save his people from their sins. They had seen enough, they had heard enough, and they should have known better, and yet the religious leaders ultimately are completely stubborn in their sin and in darkness. They are lost in darkness, and so thus their, their reaction to all of this is just, we have to somehow make this guy look like some lonely zealot who makes impossible claims. If we can just sort of brand him as, as being a, a single crazy guy who says wild things, that'll hopefully deter people from listening to him. It's clear here as we're seeing Jesus respond, he has no patience for this charge. Ultimately, as he describes here, he doesn't need a whole series of evidences to validate who he is. He's not only already given them, but it has been abundantly clear that when he speaks, he is sent from God, that he is speaking the word of God. And, and people time and time again in the Gospels remark at the authority with which Jesus Christ spoke. The, the arrest party that went out after him that, that, that time, who came back and, and, and all they could comment was, you should hear this guy. We listened to him speak and we didn't arrest him because he, he speaks with such power and truth and the miracles he performed, all of that makes it abundantly clear who he is. And so Jesus turns it back on them and says, you, you make these charges and they just demonstrate that you are lost. You just make fleshly, superficial judgments. You have no discernment, and so all you can do is just care about what you see and think in front of you, and, and, and you won't think any more deeply about the prophecies of old, and, and you've made foolish charges. In verse 14, really, he gets to the heart of the, the issue when he says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from 
or where I am going. This issue of his origin and destiny is carried on through the Gospel of John because, as you'll recall, the, the focus for the religious leaders keeps coming back to, ah, oh, he's just a guy from Nazareth, and we know his family, so he can't be anything. And they don't understand what has been clearly taught, that he has been sent from God, as, as John the Baptist declared when he saw Jesus, that he has come from above, that he is not just some mere carpenter son from Nazareth, but that he fulfills the prophecy of being born in Bethlehem, and he is sent from God, and ultimately he is here to do the will of God, and his destiny is to fulfill the will of God and accomplish the work of redemption. If they had rightly meditated on the Old Testament prophecies, then they would have seen this is the one. This is the lamb. This is the, the servant who has come for his people that the Father has sent as the sacrifice for sinners. Instead, as Jesus says, you judge by the flesh. You judge based on what you can see and touch and your own desires. And, and all that you are looking for right now is someone who is powerful, who is sent from God to free you, to, to help you, to, to make Israel, to, to improve its status and to make it a, a free country out of Roman rule or any other governing authority. And that's, that's all you care about. And he is infringing on their territory when he begins to talk about souls and sin. And so they are opposed to him. He makes a very interesting statement in verse 17 when he says, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. Our English translations don't capture, there is the word but that is in here as well, and it is emphatic because it is the idea that in verse 16, the testimony is from I and the Father. It's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Together comes that testimony, but your law, you, you have staked everything on your law. And that should strike us with a, a, a little bit of discord when we hear him say your law, because obviously he's referring to the Old Testament law. It is God's law. And yet he has defined it this way, ultimately because they have so buried, so covered up, so diluted the truth of God's law by their own interpretations and by their own systems of religion that Jesus now essentially distances himself from what they've done to God's law and says, this is, this is what you've done. This is your perversion of God's law. This is all on you. And so he puts distance between God's truth and their twisted version of them, of, of what they see it as. In front of them, stands the ultimate fulfillment of the law of God. Everything to which the law pointed, everything to which the law said is the ultimate requirement and need and, and, and all that it's pointing to, and there he is, and, and they are just in darkness, and, and they can not see any of that. And so that's why Jesus at this point just says, you have so perverted the word of God, this is your own understanding of things. So, he said to him, picking up again in verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. That, that is the ultimate testimony to spiritual darkness. That here to the leaders who are to teach God's law to God's people, who are to nurture God's people and to shepherd God's people, now stand before the Son of God and say, where is your father? As if they have no idea. Part of that, and we're going to see this in a couple of places, when they ask questions, it is not 
pure blindness and ignorance. Part of it is also hoping to bait Jesus. Part of it is hoping that, okay, so you've, you've started to talk about this relationship again with you and the Father. So where is he? Tell us a little more about him. Because what they want is more statements that they can point to and say, look, blasphemy. Look, he's, he's claiming to be God. And so part of this is, is complete spiritual blindness. Part of this is also very much manipulated at this point to try to get Jesus to say something that they can use in some way to attack him. And so Jesus then um, has responded to, they, they've asked this question. He said, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Then verse 20, John writes, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. That is a great statement that John inserts at this point, especially in light of all that we've been reading. They have been determined to arrest Jesus. They sent an arrest party out to get Jesus previously, and they failed on that account. They want Jesus condemned and John's point to us here is here is Jesus standing in the temple area, condemning the Jewish leaders, pointing out their ignorance, saying to the, 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 the ones who specialized in the law, saying, you don't know him. You don't know God. And yet they don't lay a hand on him. It is a demonstration of the sovereignty of God. It is not his hour. It is still months away before he is to be arrested and crucified. And so even though all of the desire in the world is there, the authority in the temple where, where they're supposed to be, the rulers, the temple guard that belongs to them, everything's on their side at this point to arrest Jesus. And yet again, John points out, he stands there condemning them to their face and nobody lifts a finger to try to arrest Jesus. God is in control and it is not Jesus' time. And so nothing happens. They stand there and they continue to go back and forth with him. Verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. If this is a courtroom drama, we've seen Jesus make the declaration. I am the light. Follow me. Don't walk in darkness you will receive the light of life. We've seen their defense, which is, oh, you, you're not credible. We, we don't listen to you. You've got nothing to say. And, and, and just sort of a, a lost in darkness kind of defense. And so what Jesus is doing here is essentially giving the verdict. This is the decision read, rendered from Jesus, and it is their condemnation. I am going away. You will seek me, and you will die in your sin. You will die in this sin of unbelief by stubbornly refusing to come to the light, by stubbornly refusing to believe that I am the one sent from the Father to rescue you, by stubbornly denying where I am from or who I am, you will die in your sin. And, and, and sadly, he's really making the point here that there will come a moment, probably at death, when they suddenly realize the weight and magnitude of what it is they have done. Because he says, then you will seek me and you will already be condemned because of your unbelief. Those who follow Jesus Christ, ultimately we are joined to him and we follow him in death and in resurrection. When we participate in baptism, we are picturing our union with Christ in death and resurrection. Romans 6.5 says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Therein lies our hope that by faith, 
we have been joined to Jesus Christ in his suffering on the cross so that our sin is punished in him and God's wrath is spent on him that we deserve. And so being joined with him by faith in death, we are joined with Christ in resurrection to new life. And we experience that with him. We have that hope of being raised from the dead. These he is warning and says, you will die in your sin, and where I am going, you cannot come. You did not follow me in life, you will not follow me in death. You will stand judged in death, and you will be separated from me for eternity, and you will spend eternity in hell. And so he is rendering this judgment on them. Their, res their, their response, this sort of dissent now, just again shows they're lost in darkness. Verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Let's pause there. Remarkable moment here. In, in response to Jesus saying, because you will not follow me, because you will not come after the light, you will die in your sin. They now provide this sort of dissent that is this confused kind of, is he going to kill himself? What's he, we don't know what he means by this. We don't know how he can go someplace that we can't go. And it, it just reaches its zenith in verse 25 when the scholars look at Jesus, the one sent as the Messiah, and they go, who are you? There again is both spiritual blindness and manipulation because they, they are in part listening to what he just said and they're wanting to play off that. But the, the startling reality to this is for two and a half years, he has been ministering throughout Galilee and Judea. He's been healing the sick. He's walked on the water. He's fed thousands. He's done miracles that only God can do. He spoke to crowds who have been enthralled by the things that he has said, who have seen life in the things that he has said. And here stand the scholars of Judaism looking at the Son of God saying, we don't recognize you. We don't know who you are. They want at that point again to bait him because they heard him say something in verse 24 that sort of pricked their ears. When he says, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That is a loaded statement. It's not quite this, the, the, the straightforward claim that he will make at the end of this chapter, when in verse 58 he says, before Abraham was, I am, right? That is, that is as dramatic a moment as you can get because he's now saying, you know Abraham from a couple of thousand years ago, I pre-existed Abraham, and so he is clearly calling himself eternal God at that moment, and they know that based on their reaction, and we'll see that next week. But this is sort of the precursor to that. He's kind of building to that point, and that's really, I think, what their question of who, you, who are you in verse 25 is trying to get him to go that, that one more step, hoping that they can use that against him. In verse 24, what he's saying is, unless you believe that I am the one that God promised, that I am the one that God sent, that I am the one who is from above to come to you and be sent to you, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Ultimately, all who are not trusting in Jesus Christ will stand before him condemned 
for one particular sin. And that is what he says in verse 21 when he says, you will die in your sin, singular in verse 21. It is the sin of unbelief. It is the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the refusal to embrace him and and to receive him as Savior. So apart from that, there is no hope. But what he says here in verse 24, to take it a step further is, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He now says sins plural to say, and all the rest of your sins will go with you before that judgment. You will die for the sin of unbelief, but you will also stand with all of your your history of sin, adding testimony to the validity of God's condemnation of you, of his judgment of you. The beauty of trusting in Jesus Christ is knowing that 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 whole resume of sin that goes on and on for all of us does not go with us before the final judgment of Christ. We are set free and forgiven by the work of Christ. He bore that on himself and took our place. And he says to them, you continue this way and you will stand before God and that mountain of sin will be what you will stand there with and it will condemn you beyond just the the sin of, of unbelief and it will be your eternal judgment testifying to that. They are saying, who are you? Knowing full well that he is He is beginning to suggest here again that you better believe in me as God. And so they're trying to get him to say more. And they're they're hoping that this this will lead to an indictment. It it, it echoes some of the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 43.10 says, the Lord says, you are my witnesses that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And so when he says, unless you believe that I am he, they're hearing the echo of those words. So they're hoping to try to get something else to condemn him. Verse 26, if you drop down, Jesus is responded to them. In fact, verse 25 says, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Again, this is the confusion of darkness. These are people who are, are groping in the darkness, and as much as Jesus is is being abundantly clear about his union with the Father and his speaking as the Father instructs him and and all that he's doing is under the leading of the Father, they are just, it's like they're putting their fingers in their ears. They they just don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it because they are stubbornly rejecting who Jesus is and what he says. And even though he says that he's speaking as the Father has commanded him. So the conclusion then, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. Jesus Christ started this by declaring Himself to be the light. Follow me. Don't walk in darkness, but follow me and walk in the light of life. His opponents gave this foolish defense about his credibility, showing their lack of discernment. Jesus renders the decision that ultimately says you will be condemned for your sin of unbelief. They are flailing in this sense with this dissent, you know, of, well, who, who are you? And are you going to kill yourself and all that kind of stuff? Jesus ultimately closes with one final point to render absolute certainty to what he is saying to them at this point, and that is, He is pointing forward to the ultimate goal and destination of what he came to do. 
you will see Christ, you will see me, you will see God exalted in me when you lift me up. When you send me to the cross, when you carry out this act of crucifixion and all that goes with that, you will see the glorification of the Father through the Son. Because ultimately the cross and the resurrection go hand in hand and Jesus Christ will not only be crucified for sin, but he will be risen and he will be exalted to the right hand of God the Father and all of that will demonstrate his perfect obedience to the Father. And so when Jesus is lifted up in death on the cross and the resurrection that follows, it will be clear to all that he has come to please the Father. He has come to do the will of the Father and his identity as Lord will be abundantly clear to anyone who is able to look and to see and, and to be brought out of the darkness. Verse 30 leaves us wanting to, to think that, okay, this had something of a happy ending. It says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Unfortunately, as we will see next week, there is a crucial difference between professing belief in Jesus Christ and actually following Jesus Christ. Uh, the rest of this passage uh, Pastor Stewart will speak on next week, and it's just a strong indictment of, of the difference between sort of verbalizing a profession of, oh, this must be the one, to the difference compared to what he said at the beginning, which goes back to verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. That, that term follows is present active in the Greek. It is ongoing. It is descriptive of a state of being. And so when, when Jesus Christ says, whoever is following me will walk in the light, it is a reference to one's whole direction of life. It is a, a reference to whether or not we are following Jesus Christ in our purposes, in our desires, in our decisions, in how we look at life, in the things that we are passionate for, and the things we pursue just as much as the things we run away from, and the things that we don't pursue and we go in the other direction from because we see in them something that is not in the light. And so when he says, whoever follows me, he is calling us to live differently, not to just be sort of a hanger-on who says, yeah, I, I'm still sort of searching out this Jesus and thinking about him, but to be one who is devoted to following the light and to walking after Jesus Christ. And that should demonstrate itself in a life that is different from the world. Those who are following Jesus Christ should look different from the rest of the world. People should be able to see that, that there's not the self-centered, self-absorbed, self-directed sort of mentality that governs the world. Rather, they should see you and I as people who are first and foremost servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that we are following. He is the one that we desire to please. And therefore, there's, there's paths we don't go down because we're following Jesus Christ, and that will only take us into sin. That will only take us away from him. If that's happening, if we are following Jesus Christ, I would suggest to you just quickly by way of application two evidences in this passage of what it is to follow Jesus Christ. The one is people will see us walking in the light and fleeing darkness. 
One of the things that will be distinctive about a person who is following Jesus Christ is the determination to walk in the things of God, to love the things of God, to pursue holiness, and to flee darkness. Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That word for unfruitful describes something that it, 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 it hurts it. It doesn't provide fruit because it kills it's, it's the difference between light and darkness. We, we take a, a tomato plant and we put it outside and we let it absorb the sun and it grows. If we take it inside and put it in a dark room for several days, we eventually kill that tomato plant because that's what the darkness does. It, it destroys. And so he's urging us as we follow after Jesus Christ to walk in light. That persisting in the deeds of darkness is unfruitful. It leads to destruction. So we should despise those things. We should expose those things for the benefit of other believers and younger believers. We should be able to instruct and point out and show them the dangers of those things and how those things will destroy and, and rob and kill, which is exactly what Satan seeks to do, as Jesus says. We should love light. And so we should turn our backs on those things and run toward the light of Jesus Christ like he is our only hope because he is our only hope. Because we believe that. That we have to run toward the light. Even if it makes us look different from the world. Even if it makes us look weird as far as the world is concerned. Because we run away from things that the world says, oh, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. We should embrace the light and flee darkness. The second evidence, and I would just say quickly here that I think shows following Jesus Christ is never losing sight of our destination. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are called repeatedly to keep our focus on the end, on the prize. And that's what's demonstrated here when Jesus says, when I am lifted up, then you'll know that I am he. Then you'll know who sent me. Ultimately, Jesus Christ understood that despite the rejection, despite the suffering, despite the cross, that he would one day be glorified to the right hand of his Father, that he would be exalted to that place in heaven, and he keeps his focus on pleasing the Father. Even when they are pushing at him and, and tempting him and pressing him, his one consistent theme keeps coming through again and again is, I'm here to do the will of the Father. I'm here to please him. When you see me, you should see the Father. Because that's what I want coming through in my life. And that should be our ambition. Satan desperately wants us to partition our lives. To, to sort of segment our lives. To, to, to kind of fall into the idea that there's, there's some me time over here where I do what I want. Where I do what I, I, I can get away with. The, 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 to fall into the, the, the ridiculous belief that, that there are some, some places I can leave the room dark. I can go in and shut the door and I'm, I'm still hidden in the darkness and can do as I please. If we are following after Jesus Christ, the doors are open, it is laid bare, he sees our lives and he has called us to not try to partition our lives but to have that singular focus that says, I am striving to glorify Christ. I am seeking to follow after him. I, I see that as my purpose. The the, the picture of that is, is in Hebrews chapter 12 when it talks about Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who never lost sight of ultimately that exaltation at the right hand of God the Father. It says that he endured the cross despising its shame. He endured the suffering 
Because ultimately he knew that he was obeying his father. He knew where that was leading. That to be in the place of having the pleasure of God, that should be our highest aim, is to, to bring delight to him and to please him. And so he had that, that destination in mind. So even through all of this mocking and insulting and criticizing Jesus Christ, it, it questions, who are you? Who's your father? Where's your father? Jesus ultimately says, one day, you will see this. It may be too late for some, but you will see that ultimately I am I'm singularly focused on pleasing the Father and doing his will. And, and that then is our call, to run that race with endurance. Hebrews 12 uses the singular focus of Jesus as the example for us, that we should therefore run the race with endurance, laying aside the sin that so easily entangles, and, and pressing forward fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We're not running aimlessly. We're not running for the approval of others. We are running to please God and to bring delight in doing his will. We live for what lies ahead with Jesus because we are following him and walking in the light. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, for myself as we Consider these words of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for reminding us, teaching us again from your word, the wonderful glory of following Jesus, of not being someone who is sort of on the sidelines and, and, and spectating, but that you have called us to actively follow Jesus, to walk after Jesus, to know that that means suffering, to know that that means hardship and, and temptation along the way, but to, to also know that that is the path to glory. And that is what you have called us to do, is to follow him. And I pray that, Lord, in, in areas where we, are, where we are being tempted by darkness, where we are being tempted to, to sort of think we can quarter off a, a little piece of our lives and and allow it to, to stay hidden. Lord, you've shown us again from Scripture that Jesus Christ is the light of life, and he has come to expose that, to shine that light. Lord, may we find in that wonderful, convicting, exposing light of Christ, may we find in that our hope and our salvation. Even as we approach the Lord's table and we we ask you to search us out, Lord. We thank you that it is the light of Jesus Christ that not only exposes our sin, but, but brings us back to see that he has rescued us, that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and brought into your everlasting kingdom. Lord, help us to turn from sin, to run from darkness, and to love light and to live differently. And Father, if there is anyone here who is not trusting in Jesus Christ, would today be the day that you would open their eyes and, and pull them out of the darkness that they are in? Cause them to see the incomparable beauty of the Savior and the glory of what he did in dying on the cross and rising again. Bring them to life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the light of life, for saving our souls. It's in your name we pray. Amen.